0: This Marketplace podcast is supported by Invest Puerto Rico. Build the future in paradise. Puerto Rico, a hub for innovators brimming with world-class talent and a thriving entrepreneurial ecosystem. Learn more at investpr.org backslash marketplace today. Hello, I'm Kimberly Adams. Welcome back to Make Me Smart, where none of us is as smart as all of us. Is out today, but joining me is Marketplace's Nova Zappa.
1: Kimberly Adams. It's really good to be here with you. It's Tuesday, November fourteenth, and and we're going to deep dive today. I'm excited to be digging into today's topic: carbon
0: credits. Yes, I know. Uh, So this is part of our ongoing climate series, which, as I'm sure those of you who regularly listen, thank you very much, have heard. Mm -hmm. Um, Many of the world's biggest companies have been setting net zero climate goals in recent years and... They're using carbon credits often to get there. But we want to know how these carbon credits actually work and whether they're actually an effective tool to fight climate change. So here to make us smart about this is Pedro Martins Barada. He is the Associate Vice President for Carbon Markets and Private Sector Decarbonization at the Environmental Defense Fund. Welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. Great being here.
0: Great. So let's start with the very obvious question. What are carbon credits exactly?
2: So carbon credits, essentially, let's, let's take this, this example. I'm a, a consultant here in uh, Portugal, Lisbon, Portugal, where I'm calling from. And I want to compensate my footprint, my carbon footprint, because I've been doing a lot of travel these last few weeks. And uh, one way of doing it could be that I pay somebody else to reduce their emissions. How do I do that? Well, I um, go to a country in the developing world where they have little access to renewable energy and I finance a project on renewable energy. That project reduces emissions because in that country, the, the, the base load, what, what typically gets used as energy to produce electricity is, is most likely coal or natural gas. So I'm reducing the use of coal, I'm reducing the natural gas, so I'm reducing those emissions. Then I have a methodology that calculates that, that impact. I transform this methodology that, that tells me how much carbon is actually being uh, reduced I uh issue out credits uh for that for that amount and I get to to sell them internationally.
1: I think there's two things I want to uh address here. Uh one is, you know, if you go on a travel booking site, I've done this, uh you go to buy a plane ticket and it tells you how much carbon you'll be burning for that ticket and then you have the option to go buy uh, I guess an offset or a credit. What's the difference between the two? For one, and second of all, is that actually doing anything when you go and buy that, you know, ten dollars worth, right. twenty dollars worth of
2: right? Credit? So let's let's exactly let's start with a distinction. A carbon credit is what you get by having this process that I mentioned. Uh, somebody calculates the difference between the emissions that would have happened and the emissions that really happen with the, the 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 project. So, if the project is reducing those emissions, you get credits for those tons of carbon that were not emitted that are that are reduced. That's a credit. Now, one use of these credits is to compensate, or as people say, offset somebody else's emissions. So. Your travel site, for example, you go on a travel, your airline says, you know, would you care to offset your emissions? You offset with carbon credits. When you offset with carbon credits, some people, just for uh, ease of language, they, they call them carbon offsets. So to, this, to the, the point of, is this actually doing any good? Well, it really depends on two things. The, let's talk first about the quality of what you're buying. Let's say that I am buying uh, a, a project in a country that already has tons of renewable energy projects and uh, that is already uh, where renewable energy is very commercially available. And yet I'm financing and I'm claiming that this renewable energy was there and it's motivated because I took that decision to buy that credit. If, if that happens, then you are not really doing anything additional and you're just transferring money to some uh, uh, to some country, to some developer, but you're not motivating any real emission reduction. The other issue is more of a moral issue, is if we were to allow everyone and everybody to say, well, I don't need to reduce my emissions because all I'm going to do from now on is I'm going to pay somebody else. I'm going to buy carbon credits and somebody else will do the emission reductions for me. Now, in theory, the environment sees the same outcome whether i 'm reducing or somebody else is reducing, so there shouldn 't be anything problematic about it yet, there are people that that would say, "Well, wait a moment let 's say you 're the traveler on the on the on, on the airplane, so supposedly somebody that has some means of reducing its emissions could potentially do something else." but you you've chosen to just go and buy some carbon credit from uh, a poor country. So the question then is is it morally right for you that have potentially other ways of reducing your emissions to kind of offload your responsibility onto somebody in the you know in the developing world etc. So there are some who would claim that offsetting is a bit like um in the Catholic Church, when you had indulgences, where you went to the Pope and you cleansed yourself from your sins by essentially my, making a down payment on, on to the Catholic Church, in, that in <laughs> back in the Middle Ages. Um, so, is it really? It's it's a complicated moral issue, and I would say it really depends. It depends on the credits and it depends on what you're trying to do with it.
0: How do we even end up with this system? Because this feels like quite convoluted when you lay it all out like this.
2: Well, the, the idea of a carbon market is actually uh, um, is quite an old one. And you have carbon markets that function slightly different, and they're actually compliance markets, what we call compliance markets, i.e., these are markets that are regulated markets and that serve a public purpose. So they're law in the in the EU. If a company in the EU has a, a cap on its emissions, it can, so to speak, violate that cap if it buys uh, emissions allowances from other companies in the system. Then what happened was, we had companies that are not in any of these compliance systems, but companies that want to do and want to show that they are doing something significant about climate change. And so what they tend to do is, the first thing is, uh, well, let's go and buy some carbon credits uh, and and kind of mitigate our uh, carbon footprint, which is all good, but I think at this time in in, in place in, in time, we want to do something more we want to get something more from from the companies. so what we are asking generically, what society is asking is for each company to look at their business model, look at what they are emitting, looking how they can reduce those emissions, and then and only then, once they have committed to reducing emissions at home, then look for opportunities to finance emission reductions elsewhere, right? And that's where carbon credits can have a real uh, um, big benefit because they are one of the best tools that we have to mobilize private sector finance.
1: Um, Let's go back to that airline analogy. Uh, We have all those folks who are going to be traveling for Thanksgiving. Um, If they wanted to offset uh, their travel by buying carbon credits, how would they be able to do that in a way that actually makes a difference? How do you tell a good carbon credit from a bad carbon credit that's worthless?
2: So mm. there are various ways that a consumer can look at how to approach carbon credits and carbon offsets. The one thing that I would first stipulate is that you don't do it by going on a uh, an airline uh, website, for example, and just clicking on, on, a, on a tab without knowing what the project is that you are financing with, because that's a black box. So if you want to do this properly, you should engage in what we would call due diligence of carbon projects. Now, the vast majority of consumers who are traveling for um, Thanksgiving would not be able to do this because that takes a lot of time. So there are tools available uh, from various organizations, including EDF, um, that allow you to have a little bit of better sense of what quality really means. The other thing that I would say is that there is a a whole initiative that congregates EDF, but also other environmental organizations, uh, banks, uh, uh, other types of institutions, foundations. uh, And that's an initiative called the Integrity Council for the Voluntary Carbon Market. And what we are trying to do is exactly tag credits that we think are high quality. So we have a whole checklist of criteria to define what is a high quality carbon credit. And we hope within six months to come out with our first tags.
0: The fact that you all are the ones making these resources uh, tells me that there's not exactly a global standard when it comes to these credits. And I wonder what regulation uh, in this market looks like or or lack thereof and if there's any efforts to sort of standardize uh, these credits.
2: Well, exactly. So there isn't right now. uh, There isn't a global standard of quality. So what the the initiative I mentioned, the Integrity Council, what it wants to do is establish that international, international and global standard of quality across the entire market. Now, the the global standard of quality will uh, that, that we are trying to put will solve for one of the issues in the voluntary carbon market, and that's the quality of the underlying credit. But it doesn't solve for other issues, such as you know the the the, the moral conundrum of you know should I offset or not offset, et cetera. And and there are other initiatives that are looking at different uh, pieces of this puzzle. At the same time, what we're seeing, and we've seen it in in different places in Europe and in the US, we're seeing a growth in actual financial regulators or competition regulators looking very keenly at issues like the claims. When a company comes out and says, uh, I'm putting, you know, Carbon neutral LNG, that claim in certain countries in Europe is no longer legal, because the the understanding from certain court systems is that if you are putting out in the in, in the in the um, in the world liquefied natural gas, which is a fossil fuel, you cannot claim that fossil fuel to be carbon neutral, because it gives the impression that the driver when when it drives with, with LNG its bus, that somehow it's harmless. And and for some in, in Europe that's that's not so, right? Uh so there's more and more uh let's say an accent on regulation coming from governments and coming from financial and um competition and advertising uh regulators. Uh
1: this all sounds really complicated. Uh, and it's all towards the goal of net zero, not actually zero emissions. So my question is, not only is it time to just basically get past net zero one, and are carbon credits really the solution here? Or do we need to actually move past them and look at much more you know,
2: concrete steps that all of us can take? Carbon credits are just a tool. So the, the, first of all, what is the goal? The goal, why do we call it net zero? It's net zero because even at the global level, we know that there are some emissions of carbon that we cannot reduce, at least not with the current level of technology that we have. And so what happens at that, at that point is when we, we need to get to net zero is we will have to have the technologies to remove carbon from the atmosphere. And to date, there's only really one technology that we can deploy at scale, and that's forests. Forests essentially are our our, our our single removal technology that we have, and we're working really hard to get other removal technologies by then. So, net zero as a goal is is not uh, nobody. I think questions the the reasonability of net zero. The question is. Do we need this? This is a global net zero goal that we have. Do we need to have each company pursue its own net zero uh, strategy? I would say yes, because that is a very big motivator for companies to. to company Companies are motivated by targets, and net zero is a, a very motivating target. It has already led to a significant amount of finance going into decarbonization options. But we should not lose sight that not everything has to be done by companies, first of all. Not everything has to be done voluntary. And quite the opposite, I would actually even say, if if we can, what we should be looking to get is more and more mandatory policies that really drive emission reductions. To, to cap it all, net zero is a worthy goal, but it shouldn't detract from the fact that we need everything that we have in our arsenal to decarbonize as quickly as possible.
1: All hands on deck, right? Uh, Pedro Martins Barada is with the Environmental Defense Fund, and he spends a lot of time thinking about carbon markets and private sector decarbonization. Thank you for coming on and uh, giving us this important uh, you know, primer on this whole area. Thank you.
0: Yes, thank you, Pedro. Appreciate
2: it. Thank you.
0: You know, I was really stuck by this idea that trees are kind of the only carbon removal project, you know, (laughs) product that we have at scale, um, because we had another show where we were talking about carbon capture and carbon, you know, removal and all these different technologies or storing carbon and whatever, carbon sequestration. But yeah, the only one of these strategies we have to deploy at scale is trees. (laughs) Yeah. You know what? We want to hear what you all think about carbon credits and how well, this works as a climate solution. I know it seems at the end of all these conversations, we're like, oh, we need a little bit of everything. But where do you all think <laughs> yeah, that right. this should fit in the mix? <laughs> uh, you can reach us at 508-827-6278. That's also known as 508 ubsmart smart We're going to be right back.
1: Okay, Kimberly, it's time for some news.
0: You know, why don't you go first? Because it looks like yours is more on topic with what we just discussed.
1: You know, it's almost like on cue, the White House (laughs) released the latest national climate assessment. This is a really big deal. It comes out every four to five years. um, And it gives us a sense of where we are um, and how much we're being impacted by climate change, you know, where we are in that process. And while there's some Bad news, Uh, things we will already know. Extreme weather events have become really common going from uh, once every four months in the 80s to once every three weeks this last year. That's the bad news. The good news, we are headed in some good directions. The country's energy-related greenhouse gas emissions fell 12% between 2005 and 2019 even as the population grew, even as the economy grew. So that's good. Wind energy costs dropped 70%. Solar energy costs dropped 90% over the last decade. These are all positive things. We still have a lot of work to do, according to this report. And one of the most important elements of it is a new chapter in this particular assessment that looks at economics of climate change, the economic impacts. And what do they find? Uh, This will not be a surprise to a lot of people either. Uh, I'm going to quote this. Families living below the poverty line often live where climactic changes are expected to to be the most economically damaging, like the already hot Southeast. Um, And, uh, you know, historic segregation and housing discrimination has resulted in many black and other minority communities living in neighborhoods exposed to environmental risks. So, Still lots of work to do, but some signs of hope.
0: You know, it's interesting that they brought in sort of this this climate justice component. I remember after mm. George Floyd was murdered and there was sort of this big announcement from the White House to take a whole-of-government approach to, you know, addressing issues of um, racial discrimination and issues related to race. One of the things that they promised was to take a racial justice lens to a lot of different things, and I— this is sort of another example, I guess, of where that's showing up. To see this uh, showing out, showing up in the climate assessment. Um, but yeah, that's uh, it's very uneven. These impacts yeah. of climate change. You know, the photo on the story that you linked to from Reuters of you know the floods in New York. It's just a reminder of how almost yeah. regular. These ex- these very extreme climate events have have already become um, right. Okay, that's grim. But I, I appreciate that you started and with the good news. So thank you for that. <laughs> thank you. Yeah. We needed it. I mean, we got to have some, um, glimmer <laughs> some glimmer
1: of hope somewhere. Um,
0: some glimmer of hope. Well, my story, is, you know, I don't know if it's optimistic or, or negative or whatever. It's I'm kind of. Anyway, so there's a story in uh, NBC News about people working overtime, right, and how lots of folks have talked about the staffing shortages and how, you know, what it does to wages, what it means for people looking for a job. But one of the things that chronic staffing shortages and chronic sort of low unemployment, which is good because it means that most of the people who want a job can still get a job, but businesses are still really struggling to fill positions, especially in a lot of um, pl- a lot of industries where you need a certain number of people to do a job at a given point. Thinking firefighters, nurses, police officers, um, childcare facilities, and so what's happening is that people in these fields are working tons and tons of overtime. So I'm just going to read from this article. From firehouses and police stations to hospitals and manufacturing plants, workers say they are being required to work increasing overtime hours to make up for post-pandemic worker shortages, leaving them sleep-deprived, scrambling to cover child care duties, and missing birthdays, holidays, and vacations. While the extra hours can provide a financial boost, some workers say the trade-off is no longer worth it and And as they see no end in sight to a problem that has now lasted several years, I don't know if you remember the um, potential um, strikes on the railroad where the Biden administration Mm -hmm. intervened to um, stop those workers from going on strike. But a big part of it was them saying, look, look. Yes, we want more money, but really we want our time back because yes. we're being forced to work all this overtime and we're tired. The um, I think it was also – it came up in the uh, UPS uh, negotiations when mm-hmm. they were getting ready to go on strike saying that they were tired of being forced to work all of this overtime and they wanted their time back and – you know, after fighting for wages for so long, uh, especially post-recession, uh, not the pandemic recession, but the recession prior to that,
2: people had to
0: fight—the so, Great Recession. People had to fight so hard to get wages up. And now it's interesting to see people really fighting for their time because they're burned out and there's not enough people to do the jobs that need doing and— you know, they're pushing – as this article points out, people are – the labor unions are pushing for employers to raise wages further and invest in training and, and improve work environments to um, fill these empty roles. But it is an ongoing issue, you know, just mm. being short-staffed and people being tired.
1: Yeah. This overtime, though, for one, one thing, is it really overtime when it's mandatory? <laughs> <laughs> I mean I it's guess you're making legally, overtime if it's over money 40 hours a yeah, week. <laughs> you're making but so. I, I always think of overtime as somewhat voluntary.
0: No. You know like
1: would you please work a little extra because we need we're short but like when it's so when it's mandatory overtime just I don't know it has a different ring to it for me. But second of all, yeah. do you think this problem started during the pandemic or just made it worse?
0: I think the pandemic made it worse. I mean, we've got a lot of trends in society that contribute to workforce shortages, um, you know, the rising cost of college education and certificate programs for fields like nursing, for example, or, or the medical field. And so that Increases barriers to entry for these jobs where we have an aging population that needs more medical care, but fewer people going into the field because it's too expensive and it takes too long to get the degrees, you know, with too Mm. long being subjective, Mm. obviously. And then also, um, you know, starting from... The Trump administration, extreme crackdowns on immigration that reduced Mm -hmm. the number of immigrants we had coming into the country, often who had these higher levels of skills to fill these jobs, thinking, again, of nursing or of, you know, in some technical fields and things like that. And so I think that the pandemic then exacerbated some, you know, already happening trends, plus population declines, et cetera.
1: Yeah, which ignored one of the things that we know fundamentally that gives America its economic strength is the fact that we can import labor more easily than other countries can. And that helps us out and helps grow our economy. And we haven't been doing that. (laughs) Yeah, indeed. Uh, All right. Well, that's it for the news. Uh, Kimberly, what do you think? Should we do the mailbag?
0: I think we should. Let's do it. Hi, Kai and Kimberly. This is Godfrey from San Francisco. Jesse from Charleston, South Carolina. And I have a follow-up question. It has me thinking and feeling a lot of things. So as we were just discussing, last week we talked about carbon capture technologies and some of the risks that come with them. And we got a message about another kind of carbon capture.
2: Let's hear it. This is Reginald from Scottsbluff, Nebraska. I did a cursory search of your program history and didn't find anything related to Carbon Sequestration from Growing Crops. By the inflection in your voices, the Carbon Capture Show is a bummer to both of you, so consider this topic as potential salve for your souls. It is a <laughs> burgeoning industry in ag production. Uh, there's much yet to know on how to use it for improving the environment on the macro scale, but it is as simple as planting seeds and growing crops. I'm an ag producer in western Nebraska and eastern Wyoming. I'm all in on these concepts. Keep up the great work.
0: Oh, huh. thank you. That's that's nice to hear, Reginald. And so our producers added this note that by planting cover crops, as as Reginald was just discussing, farmers can help keep CO two in the ground. The plants basically take in more CO two and less is released from the soil. And there are. Uh, there are efforts to develop carbon offset programs that would pay farmers for planting cover crops. And so this is an alternative to just, like, leaving a field sitting empty in between plantings, uh, but just to, like, maybe plant clover or something that allows that carbon uh, to stay in the ground, which, you know, over hundreds and thousands of acres, I can imagine, will will make a difference. Got
1: it. Okay, here we go. Before we go, we're going to leave you with this week's answer to the Make Me Smart question which is, what's something you thought you knew but later found out you were wrong about? This week's answer was prompted by last week's answer. Logan had shared that he he was wrong about science as the end-all be-all climate solution.
0: This is Bernadette from Atlanta, Georgia. I really appreciated Logan's response to the make-me-smart question. Like him, I thought science would provide solutions to the climate crisis, and so I became an engineer. I work on water and waste infrastructure. But after five years in the industry, I now see how what we design and build and who benefits from it is really driven by policy. Some of Biden's policies have given me hope, um, especially the Civilian Climate Corps, but I'm concerned about the upcoming election for next year, and now more of my hope is really coming from new and younger candidates on other party tickets like Claudia de la Cruz. Wow, thanks Bernadette. It's uh it's interesting how much more open everybody is now about talking about age as a, an issue in the 2024 race. You know, I feel like 6 to 8 months ago, everybody was kind of tiptoeing around the topic, and now lots of folks are saying with their full voice that we really need younger people in politics and there's more conversations to be had about that, I'm sure, in the coming year. Indeed.
1: Uh, And, you know, almost on cue as well, along with the climate report, uh, national climate assessment that came out, the Biden administration did announce another $6 billion in investments towards, you know, helping the country become more resilient. So we'll see what shape that takes, but it's a promising sign again.
0: All right, we want to hear your answer to the Make Me Smart question. Our number is 508-827-6278, also known as 508 smart. Make Me Smart is produced by Courtney Bergseeker. Ellen Wolfus writes our newsletter. Today's program was engineered by Jake Cherry with mixing by Brian Allison. Our intern is Neela Farshabandi.
1: Ben Tolliday and Daniel Ramirez composed our theme music. Our senior producer is Marissa Cabrera. Bridget Bodnar is the director of podcasts. Francesca Levy is the executive director of digital and Marketplace's vice president and general manager. And our boss is Neil Scarborough.
0: (laughs) Our boss. Indeed. Everybody's boss. (laughs) Yes.